I am joined once again by Sam Burns, founder and chief strategist at Mill Street Research. Sam, great to have you here. How have you been? I'm good. Thanks, Jack, for having me back on. It's my pleasure, Sam. It's been uh, just over a year since you came back on Forward Guidance. What's, uh, what's your outlook right now when it comes to the macro, when it comes to assets, stocks, bonds? You know, everyone's talking about the soft landing. Everyone's inflation's coming down. The economy's you know somewhat resilient so far. What do you think? What's your what's your sort of midterm outlook for 2023? Yeah, well, I'd say certainly the outlook uh, coming into 23 looks a lot better than it did going into 22. Um, that uh, the indicators that I look at, uh, looking at say one to three, maybe six months out, uh, are much more bullish now than they've been for for quite a while. Uh, probably since you know mid 21, we've seen these kind of readings on the uh, you know on the, on the kind of risk on risk off indicators that I look at. So that's a lot more positive. Uh, I think we're coming off of a period of heavy pessimism among investors and uh, and a lot of headwinds from from the Fed in particular. I think that's a lot, a lot of that's going to ease and as sentiment starts to improve, you've got the the scope for equities to do uh, to do better in the next few months. Uh, I think uh, you know corporate earnings are are the risk now. Uh, I think they'll be, you know, soft but not disastrous. Um, and I think the economy is probably in better shape to withstand the Fed's rate hikes now than they would have been in past cycles. Certainly, the sort of the, you know, the 05, 06, 07 period when the last time we saw these kind of rate hikes. So um, I'm, I'm relatively positive compared to what I think the consensus has been. Um, not su- super bullish in the sense that think the economy is going to go through the roof, um, but I think uh, I think equities can can do better now. Certainly, in the first half of this year. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your process. When you said the indicators you're looking at, risk on, risk off, what are those? And then I know your specialty is looking at analysts' earnings revisions, which is a little bit complex. So we'll save it for maybe the second half of the interview, uh, but we are in early season. So that's why I'm, I'm so happy that we're talking right now. But yeah, first, yeah, what, what is your process in terms of the indicators? And then how, you know, how does that impact your outlook? You said you think you know, you're pretty bullish on, on stocks. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so those indicators and kind of the, the more tactical, you know, macro market indicators are looking at both the, the trend and momentum in equities, which has certainly improved. You know, volatility has been coming down. Those are all tends to be good signs over the next few months. Um, also seeing things like credit spreads come in. So, you know, cross asset, you know, movements are, are supportive. Uh, and we're seeing things like uh, industrial metals, you know, and some of the commodities that are sensitive to growth have picked up. Um, some of that is capturing the fact that you know China is looking to try to reopen after being you know heavily impacted by COVID um, and their real estate issues. So um, a lot of those things are things where they had been very negative and are getting you know maybe less bad or picking up um, from low levels. Um, and you start you see that in uh, sentiment as well. Uh, the other thing, of course, is, is the Fed, where you've had you know you know really heavy headwinds. The Fed has been aggressively trying to not just raise rates but keep stocks from going up, essentially. Um, for most of the last year, it looks like they're moving towards the end of that process. And uh, we even actually saw the Bank of Canada doing that probably yesterday, uh, kind of moving to the sidelines. So I think, you know, February, March will be the last of the rate hikes. And that's showing up in the indicators that I watch as well, looking at the difference, say, between the two-year Treasury and the, the three-month Treasury yield uh, as a measure of where the market thinks uh, rates are going to be going. Um, that's that's gotten you know, a lot better. So both the kind of, uh, you know, Macro interest rate, you know, commodity backdrop, as well as the equity uh, indicators themselves, are looking a lot more favorable now and coming off of a really rough time, you know, late last year. Right. A lot of the data that was very negative last year, people talk about the two quarters in a row of quarter over quarter negative real GDP growth. Real means inflation adjusted. The reason it was so bad is because inflation was so high. Actual nominal growth now, we're recording Thursday, January 26th, when we had the you know, apparently good reading of, uh, I think, 2.9% real GDP growth for Q, uh, fourth quarter. Nominal growth was lower. It's just that inflation was so much lower as well. So what you're subtracting by has gone down as, as well. Um, how much of this uh, transitory Goldilocks or soft landing, depending on how, you, uh, how much of that is due into this somewhat rapid fall in inflation? And to what degree are you worried that economic growth will f- start falling quite sharply? Because Rate hikes do have a delay. They're, as the Federal Reserve constantly remind us, you know they uh, they act with a lag. Uh, as well, you know, so many of the tailwinds of 2020 and 2021, the consumer has flushed with cash. Those are ebbing away, away sl- slowly. Um, you know, the P 
PMIs, uh, the Purchasing Managers Index, are, are now in contractionary territory. They've been falling you know, pretty much every month. Housing, you know, I'm, I'm throwing a lot of bearish stuff at you, but uh, how do you sort of counter those bearish arguments that I, I just said? I think it's not necessarily that the economy is, is going to you know, accelerate and, and go gangbusters again. It's more uh, partly relative to what I think probably the expectations were uh, over the last few months that you know, not as bad as expected is in equity market terms, good. And also I think that there are you know, um, offsets you know, potentially globally, you know, Europe is holding up better than expected. They may dodge a recession this year, which was very not, much not the consensus even a couple of months ago. Uh, China you know, might you know, stabilize at least and, and do a little bit better, um, which will help you know, that region. So when I look you know, globally, at, at, even at the uh, earning decimal revisions that I look at, they're negative. But they're more negative in the U.S. actually than they are elsewhere, which is unusual. Um, and I'm still seeing a cyclical tilt in some of the uh, sector profiles of earnings estimates, meaning that the more cyclical sectors like financials or energy or industrials or materials, those are actually seeing somewhat better than average revisions or at least less negative than average. Whereas the, you know, the growth sectors, tech and communication services and so forth, and even some of the, the defensive sectors are seeing worse than expected revisions. Um, so... That all kind of tells me that it's not a purely defensive, you know, economies going into recession kind of profile. It's much more mixed, and therefore you have to, you know, pick and choose. But I think it's uh, there are some offsets to to some of this. Partly some of the, the la- leftover from the stimulus and the uh, the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the others, you know, um, spending bills that have put and put through that will take time to show up in in, in data, um, but I think are, are, are relatively supportive. Um, and so I think there's a little bit better fiscal support, at least for now. That may change because Congress is now split. Um, and I think the market, uh, the economy is better suited to withstand the rate hikes than they were in the past cycles. And I think uh, a lot of that's already happened in terms of housing and, uh, and autos and things like that. Some of those intersensitive um, you know, markets have already responded to a large degree. And so if the Fed does pull back and uh, long-term interest rates have already started to fall, Mortgage rates have pulled back a bit. I think there's enough there to kind of balance things out so that you don't get, you know, a severe recession. I think you get maybe a mild either recession or kind of, you know, roughly zero-ish growth for a while, um, which is, again, not great, but not the end of the world. And so a bit of P-multiple expansion will be enough to to hold equities up. Sam, I want to draw attention to the point you said about cyclical stocks versus defensive stocks. This is a key thing analysts such as yourself look at where... In a recession, uh, people are still drinking Coca-Cola. They're still doing, uh, you know, buying toothpaste and stuff like that. So companies like Coca-Cola and Procter and Gamble, Staples, they do well. You know, you still have to pay your electricity bill. Whereas uh, things that you buy that you don't need every day, you know, like housing, cars, jewelry, those don't do do as well. I want and I want to throw something at you though. Uh, so I, I presume you're referring to the fact that cyclical stocks for the past few months have been doing well. Copper miners exploding higher because of China. Um, uh, home builders doing well, very well. That and that actually surprises me as well. Um, how? What? What about the fact that? And, and also, sorry. Um, cyclical, uh, secular growers or companies like Apple and you know Google, Microsoft, because they can grow in any environment. But uh, to what degree do you think though that those like mega cap giants are actually cyclical now because they've become so big that they're not immune to macroeconomic headwinds. And a lot of the things in the cyclical indices are things like copper miners that are you know surging because the price of copper is exploding higher because of the reopening in China. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the economy is strong. Likewise, you know, air, uh, airline activity, nor- when it's high, normally indicates a good economy. But there's just so much pent-up demand that you still can have airlines printing money and the economy very, very poor. So I'm wondering what you think about that. No, you're right. And there's a lot of mixed signals out there. And a lot of that is is just the lagged effects of all the distortions and, and, and volatility caused by COVID and the, and the response to COVID and then Russia and then China. All of these major global shocks have thrown uh, a lot of volatility into the macro data, both the real data and inflation, as well as uh, earnings data. Um, and so there's still a lot of things that are kind of the, the second order effects from that that we're still seeing. And so whether it's, you know, the tech stocks, a lot of them got, you know, bid up in the equity market, but also got so their, their earnings jump because of all the work from home. Now that's kind of starting to reverse a bit. Those winners from, you know, COVID 
which are also tend to be viewed as secular growers, but uh, have, have now had to sort of go the other way. And some of the more cyclical areas that had gotten beaten up are now doing better. Now, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the, the move in copper miners or home builders and things is not enough to offset maybe the, the weakness in Microsoft and Apple and some of those, uh, those names like that, um, because they are having to adjust to both slower growth and the fact that they may have just overstaffed and, and kind of, you know, gotten too big, um, both in, in, in actual terms and in market cap terms uh, you know, over the last year or two. So I think you're seeing a rebalancing and kind of a, a, a you know a relative movements between say value and growth and uh, some of the sectors going on, um, and that's why you know Exxon is now back to being worth more than Tesla and you know things like that 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 you see um, that are more rebalancing than meaning everything is going down and it's a it's a broad scale recession. So I think that's the important part is is seeing this as as rotation and also just volatility in the numbers that. We're going to have to just kind of wait for that just to settle out a little bit to really get a, a better feel for you know what's really been going on because even the employment data or GDP numbers are probably going to get revised substantially over the next six to twelve months and we may have a different view of what's been what's been going on lately. Um, but I think is is if, if you know if the situation in Russia, situation in China, and COVID all at least sort of stay stable or, or improve a bit, um, then I think some of those shocks are going to you know, are going to go away and you're going to go back to sort of the, you know, s- slow, but, but steady growth that we had, you know, prior to COVID uh, It's probably more the, you know, resuming that steady state uh, as we go in the next year or two. I now want to ask you about your valuation of stocks relative to bonds, because a year ago, when we spoke the, the first time you came on forward guidance, bonds were at, let's just say zero and you have stocks had a price to earnings ratio of something like 30 and a price to earnings ratio of something like uh, 30 is the same as it yielding, you know, 3.3%. And uh, if, if a bond yields zero, that's like an infinity price to earnings ratio. If, if the 10 year was at 1%, that's a PE of 100. But then stocks are more risky. So you have to, you know, lower the valuation from that. However, stocks also grow and bond earnings do not, of course. So you have to adjust for that. But what, so, so there are times, and you know, most times, this is the case when stocks are attractive to bonds because bonds don't grow. Um, but what about the fact now that you know, risk-free rates, other than duration risk, uh, have risen so much? So you know you can now get four and a half percent by just parking your money in a money market fund. Uh, so suddenly, this company that's you know making this futuristic robot that's going to come out in twenty twenty eight is no longer nearly as attractive. Um, and also, just the fact that you know if earnings are contracting, revenues are still going up, sales growth is still high, but you know, Microsoft made less money in Q4 than it did in 2022 than it did in Q4 2021. Um, what is, you know, I don't want to get into individual companies, um, but when you look at the S&P 500 total earnings, how are you, what what are your personal uh, views on S&P 500 earnings? And, you know, the S&P 500 is now at, let's say, 4,000. Uh, if it earns $200 in 2023, that would be a forward price to earnings ratio of 20. Um so I want to know what you think about the valuation, the forward, uh, um, the, the forward earnings. And I also want to know, perhaps even more importantly, what is your view on what the other analysts think? Because this is where I think your, your specialty is at, at Mill Street Research is meticulously tracking other analysts' um, uh, forecast for individual stocks as well as the broader index. And that is is very important. That's a very important stuff. And, and certainly the earnings story um, kind of the, the backdrop is, is become much more important now. You know, last year was more about the Fed and interest rates and, and, and the kind of the valuation compression because of that. And now this year, it looks like it's going to shift from being kind of the you know, Fed problem to being a, an earnings problem potentially. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, in earnings estimates for the, for the S&P 500 for most stocks have come down pretty substantially already from where they were, say, even just a few months ago. Um, and a lot of that has been driven by margin compression. So forward estimates of margins have come down quite a bit already because, uh, as you mentioned, sales estimates have actually held up relatively well for the index. Um, some of that is just the nominal, you know, inflation kind of holding them up. Um, but but you know, margin compression has been you know pretty substantial already. Now it could have farther to go in the sense that uh, S and P index margins, at least on a forecasted basis, are still not quite back to where they were pre-COVID. They were just below twelve percent, I think, before you know, in, in late night twenty nineteen. And now they're getting down to sort of the mid 12% range, 12, 12.5% range um, after having been as high as 13, um, you know, six months or, or so ago. So there's definitely been a lot of uh, adjustment already in that. Uh, I think there could be a bit more. 
Um, but I think that if even if stocks or the S&P only earns $200 a share, which would be below consensus, where consensus is now, um, I think the fact that uh, the you know, 10-year yields have already pulled back to 3.5% uh, on the 10-year treasury and could go even somewhat lower if people think that the Fed will, in fact, start cutting rates either late this year or, or next year. Um, I think that valuation you know, could, could move in favor for equities. But yeah, my, my longer term model that you kind of alluded to where I'm looking at uh, the long term, you know, corporate bond yield uh, adjusted for inflation and compare that to kind of the longer term outlook for, um, you know, S&P real earnings growth. So after accounting for inflation, that model is actually still pretty, it shows low implied growth, meaning that people are expecting about zero real growth for earnings over the next, say, 10 to 20 years. Um, whereas I think kind of maybe one and a half to two percent is probably a fair reading, and the actual trailing twenty-year reading is closer to you know four percent. So I think the markets are already pricing in pretty low expectations for long-run growth, not just this year, but longer-term growth and real bond yields after accounting for inflation and the fact that credit spreads have come down and that kind of thing still aren't really that attractive compared to what you could potentially get from from stocks over the longer term. So uh, when I see the tactical indicators that I mentioned earlier and this kind of longer term relative valuation indicator still showing pretty low long run real growth expectations, meaning it's a very low hurdle the market's putting on growth right now, then that's usually a pretty supportive um, backdrop. And actually, we've seen stocks outperform bonds most of the last, you know, say, six to 12 months, even though neither has done that well um, on a relative basis. Stocks have actually held up better, which is unusual. Usually when interest rates go up this much, uh, stocks lag. And, and they haven't because you've got this sort of distortion or, you know, this this gap in, in earnings uh, versus bond yields. And that's still relatively favorable in my work for, for stocks. Um, so I think longer term, stocks still look better than bonds. I think maybe neither one of them will do, you know, super well in the sense of meeting their long run uh, returns, uh, average returns. But I think stocks are still a better place to be, at least for a while now, uh, than, than bonds based on relative valuation. So... If we say that in 2022, uh, the S&P 500 earned about $215 a share, again, we're still getting that Q4 data. So this is just an, an estimate I'm getting from a, 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 an estimator. Um, the rough estimate it appears for 2023 earnings for the S&P 500 is 225 Do you think that uh, the S&P earnings will realize that, over-realize that, go higher, or under-realize that? And then also, what do you think the expectations will be once that happens, you know, because if let's say you go from $215 a share in 2022 to $215 a share in 2023. Okay. That's no growth. But uh, if I saw that on an analyst, I'd say I'd expect it to go, go down because that's uh, you know, the, the, the trend is that the rate of, of growth is going down until, until we'll go negative. So yeah. What do you, what do you think about just the broad picture of, of earnings for S and P 500? Like, can, can you give us a, a specific number? Like, can you comment on the 225 that's expected? Yeah, no, I mean, looking at the uh, the fact set numbers, which is mostly what I look at, they, they build the, the aggregate indexes uh, estimates up from the bottom up analysts. And yeah, the, the 2022 number is looking at 217 and the 2023 number is 225, uh, just over 225 right now. So um, so that would be, you know, moderate growth uh, priced in at the moment. So if those the 225 comes down to, say, 217 and you get zero growth, or even if it's slightly less, I think you know, given that people were expecting, you know, that the tightening and everything else that was happening would produce a bad recession and, and you know, down 20% earnings, uh, was what at least some people have been talking about. I think that would be a relatively benign outcome. Um, and so I think, you know, that would be equivalent to a soft landing, essentially, if you got even a, you know, a, a small, you know, negative single digit growth in earnings for this year, and then maybe a little bit of growth in 2024. Um, so you might have a sort of, uh, you know, plateau in earnings, but not a, a, a drop off the cliff kind of uh, you know re result. I think relative to say what expectations have been by some of the other strategists and some some people in the market, that would be that would be okay. It would be a bumpy ride. It means that 2023 will be a back and forth between basically the effects of interest rates, which are going to be you know uh, maybe potentially getting better, and earnings, which you know their estimates will be moving the wrong direction. Uh, but, but like I say, the the intensity of the er estimate cuts lately, particularly for the large caps. Has been pretty heavy, so um, even if you saw the pace of cuts be reduced, so kind of like a second derivative argument, 
that instead of cutting at a, at a heavy rate, they're cutting at a lesser rate. Even that would probably be enough to keep a, a bit of a floor under stocks uh, because that's typical. You know, the analysts start with a high number and then kind of work their way down over the course of the year as kind of reality uh, comes along. That's that's to be expected. I mean, most investors uh, kind of anticipate that to some degree, uh, whereas it's it's when they get the real major cyclical turns wrong uh, that, that you run into sort of issues. I don't see that happening as much this year because I think the, the Fed and interest rates and all that will be less of a, a swing factor uh, as like they've been in the last couple of years. So barring any new, you know, major COVID outbreaks or uh, land wars in Europe or things like that, I think you probably will see more stability in the estimates and therefore a little less volatility in the you know equity returns that, that go with it. Right, so the analysts who you follow, uh, who look at, this is my outlook on Apple's earnings. This is my outlook on Microsoft's earnings. They have a slightly different uh, incentive than let's say someone like me who, or, or someone who wants a lot of attention, uh, who, you know, making bold calls. And because, you know, that, that that's what, you know, people are incentivized to do when they're, when they're, you know, uh, uh, that's very different from an analyst who works at a big bulge bracket bank who is upgrading Apple. They just want to you know, keep stay in the role that they are in. So they, they don't tend to make bold calls. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. And, you know, if, if Apple, like in March 2020, the global economy plunges into a severe recession, they're going to downgrade sharply. And then if you have a miraculous rebound in corporate profits, they're going to upgrade sharply. So they, they're kind of always catching up to the actual reality because to, to make a, a prediction about the, the future is you could be wrong. And if you could be wrong, that's, that's not good for, you know, your, your standing and your reputation with your firm's clients. If, um, uh, you know, you make a bearish call or, or something like that. Uh, so I imagine, um, so, so first of all, I want to, you know, make any comment about whether to what degree I said was correct, or if you, if you disagree with anything. And then uh, also if, if it is the case that analysts are always going to be catching up, racing, racing ahead, or they have to slow down. Uh, and their, their forecasts are too bullish. Where are the analysts right now? Do you think that downgrades are coming for earnings? Or do you think upgrades are coming? You know, in, in uh, June of 2022, it was all upgrades because they were so bearish and so pessimistic and the economy rebounded so quickly. Uh, now, do you think it's the case that their expectations of where you know, uh, earnings would be a few months ago would have to come down? Or, or what do you think? No, I think you're right. I mean, analysts definitely do have certain, you know, kind of job related uh, constraints or, or biases or incentives um, to in terms of the way they behave. And in some respects, the work that I do um, in looking at earnings estimate revisions, you know, kind of takes advantage of that to some degree in the sense that knowing, seeing what analysts are doing now can help you figure out what they're likely to be doing, say, a month from now or three months from now, because they tend to kind of go in, in trends and act as a herd and you know, move in one direction for, for a number of months at a time. And so what I found is that uh, you're right at inflection points in, say, the economy or you know, major swings, um, they tend to you know, be a little bit late, meaning that they can't predict and you know, certainly can't predict things like COVID, but even you know, recessionary periods, things like that. Um, or when the Fed suddenly shows up and says, oh, we're cutting rates to zero and there's free money everywhere, then they have to respond to that. And then it takes a little while for them to catch up. Now, in, in more normal times, when there's not as much sort of big picture macro swings going on, they can do a better job of, of forecasting earnings. But really, the focus of my work is not what the level of their earnings estimates is, meaning you know, what number they expect. It's the changes. It's the revisions to the estimates. And usually those are, do have uh, you know, you know, helpful you know, kind of forecasting ability for returns. Um, and because once they, they do start moving in one direction, that tends to mean something. There's some new news that's happening that's causing them to raise their estimates or lower them. So I think the, really, the important thing, the most useful tool uh, in terms of using estimates is on a relative basis, meaning all the estimate, all the analysts kind of have these similar, you know, biases, incentives, but in some, some of somewhere they'll be raising estimates, somewhere they'll be lowering estimates and in seeing where those uh, that relative activity is, is, is really the, the key in the sense of uh, finding out which sectors or stocks are more likely to be outperforming or have, have fundamental tailwinds. So I call it fundamental momentum, kind of looking for where the estimates are moving in the right direction uh, whether they're, you know, were too high or too low before, if they're moving up, then that means something positive has been happening and that's probably going to show up in the stock prices and, and vice versa for negative. So I look at it much more on a relative basis than kind of looking at the absolute numbers in, in aggregate. Um, but that applies to even to, you know, to sectors and to regions, to, you know, to kind of big picture views as well as to individual stocks. Um, so I think, you know, it could very well be the case that estimates come down in aggregate 
over the next few months, uh, but maybe at a slower pace. Um, but I think it's more the relative uh, picture that's, that's more important. And that's where you can get some of the, uh, the real kind of forecasting ability and kind of the alpha for building portfolios. And that's what a lot of my work is, is driven by, is looking at kind of where their changes to estimates are and, and which are the strongest and which are the weakest. And, and what are you seeing there? Big picture has been that, um, you know, there's been a lot of, there's been, earnings estimates have been falling pretty much for every sector. Um, not every industry, but the majority of them. Um, so the kind of the backdrop is that estimates are falling. So it's where are they falling least or maybe rising and where are they falling most? Um, and so I've seen, you know, areas like, you know, energy, of course, has been strong for quite some time. It's kind of been losing some of its momentum as oil and energy and natural gas prices have been coming down. But, you know, on a near term basis, their estimates are holding up fairly well, uh, particularly for like refiners and, and uh, you know, uh, places like that that have, you know, uh, and some of the energy equipment names that have longer term contracts. Um, some of the financials have been doing well. They've had much better net interest margins for a while. All that's starting to, to come back a bit. Um, but the st- better stock markets will help the uh, kind of the investment banking and the, the deal, the uh, capital market side. Um, and uh, industrials, some of their, including some of the transportation related areas, have helped, been holding up relatively well. Uh, some areas of consumer discretionary. Uh, now that excludes things like Amazon and Tesla, which are actually part of discretionary sector. They're not tech stocks, strictly speaking. But they're the biggest part. They're the, the biggest part, right? Right. They're the biggest weights. Yeah, exactly. And so you look at the cap weighted numbers um, that are skewed by, you know, big names like Amazon and Tesla, you can see a different picture sometimes than what you see if you look at, say, the whole sector on an equal weighted basis. It's actually very true right now in technology, uh, where the cap weighted, the really big names like the Apples and Microsofts have been weak. Uh, they've had below average revisions. Um, and the same is true in communication services where Google and Meta and things like that have been weak. They Sorry, below average, average stuff, as in uh, the downgrades are higher or below average as in terms of the upgrades are smaller? So the, the down, they have more, more downgrades uh, in among the large cap uh, you know, tech and communication service stocks. Um, but they actually, yeah, if you look at the equal weighted tech sector um, where you're not skewed by those big cap names, you actually see they're actually relatively above average. So a lot of the like communication services or communications equipment and uh, software names actually have better than average uh, revisions now. Now, some of them are, you know, are expensive, um, but but they actually are holding up relatively well. But a lot of them are kind of mid cap names or smaller cap names. And therefore, they don't have the weight that uh, some of the big names do. Um, but there there are pockets of strength in terms of estimate revisions, even in what you would think would be the weak sectors in some of these areas, uh, because they're skewed by a few of those really big you know, big names. And so I think it's, you know, important a lot of times to, you know, look below the top 10 names or, you know, the really mega cap names and see what's going on below the surface. Cause uh, you can see um, you get very different pictures sometimes from those, those, those metrics and though the equal weighted numbers in some of those sectors look better uh, than, than the cap weighted numbers. And that's true in general. I mean, the, the average stock, even in the S and P has done better on a return basis than the cap weighted indexes have. Um, so this, you know, smaller cap names, even amongst the larger cap indexes have been doing better, uh, which tells you that um, it is somewhat specific to some of those large cap names that we're seeing the, the downgrades. Uh, and so you can see that in those, those relative numbers uh, as well. So I understand, you know, there some alpha in, oh, the financials and the energy sectors, those, those revisions are stronger than in the tech sector. And within the tech sector, within the discretionaries, uh, the smaller market cap companies are performing better than the larger ones. And so you, know, you could do that. But when it comes to macro, you said pretty much every single sector, maybe with the exception of energy, is downgrading. What about that is bullish to you? And you also use the term relative, which I, I wonder, could you explain that a little more? Right. So, so right now, if you just look at how many analysts have raised versus lowered their estimates on a you know, four, 12-month estimate basis, um, for all stocks across the you know two twenty three hundred stocks that I track in the U.S., um, on average, you know the average stock is seeing its estimates fall, uh, more analysts cutting than raising, and um, that's true on average in all of the all eleven of the sectors, um, even in energy now. So it's just a, mostly a matter of degree of you know how much they're cutting, how broadly they're cutting. In some sectors, there's you know basically a very small majority of of analysts that are cutting. And in other sectors, there's a you know, much bigger majority that are cutting. And that's what I mean by relative is that because we're in a, a kind of an earning slowdown period, 
and you're coming off of you know a very strong period from 21 and early 22, um, it's it's natural to see earnings estimates come down, uh, and certainly the, uh, the more analysts cutting the raising because the Fed's been raising rates and all these other reasons we know why the economy is slowing. So that, that's to be expected. And so on a relative basis, what you're really looking for is where are analysts you know cutting li- less or where are they cutting more. And so you know when I, when I look at the profiles, we see you know energy and financials, industrials. Um, some of those areas and, and, and some parts of technology uh, are holding up relatively well. Uh, consumer staples has actually been improving, uh, I think, partly because of the uh, uh, fall in you know, gas and uh, gasoline prices and also natural gas prices, which affects their packaging and transportation costs. So I think there's a lot of things that are you know, shifting right now. Uh, but then you've seen you know, that the uh, things like utilities, uh, but also tech, uh, communication services, uh, parts of a lot of healthcare, those have been relatively weak. You've been seeing a lot more. Uh, analysts cutting estimates there than in some of the other sectors. So that that relative picture is very important because uh, if you just say, well, analysts are cutting, that's bad. I'm going to sell all my stocks and go home. You might miss a lot. Um, and so I think, and particularly for portfolio managers who have to be invested in stocks, they can't sell everything and just sit, sit on the sidelines. They need something to buy. Uh, and so they're looking for the relative performance trends. And you actually are seeing um, you know, some of those sectors hold up relatively well and some of them are outperforming on a relative basis. And so that's why it's, it's important to watch those things on a relative basis rather than just looking at the kind of the big, you know, the, the, the overall index numbers and, uh, and stopping there. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. All right, so I want to throw uh, three things at you, which I'm actually relatively constructive on, as you might have gathered. I'm, you know, a little bit, a little bit bearish. Uh, but China, Chinese equities, gold miners, and then airlines. I noticed that those the businesses there appear uh, either very strong or the rate of change is, is very uh, positive in their favor. So I'm wondering what your uh, tracking of analyst estimates would, would say about those three sectors. Gold prices have jumped, and so that's been sort of helping the gold miners. Uh, I think some of that is tied, of course, to the U.S. dollar having weakened. Uh, that tends to be, you know, uh, a boost for gold prices in, in other currency terms. Um, so I think you're seeing some of that uh, shift from the very strong dollar environment we had into, until October, November last year into uh, sort of a weaker, at least stable dollar uh, environment now. Um, China, uh, to some degree, um, is coming off very, very, you know, weak, you know, uh, period, you know, last year. Um, China had some of the very weakest earnings estimate revisions uh, across the whole global, you know, picture that I look at, um, for a long time and still does to some degree. Uh, what we've seen there is that actually some of the, again, some of the large caps in China have looked better on revisions, but kind of the average Chinese stock is not really that strong still. Uh, and hasn't done as well as some of the, the big cap names. So you have to be, you know, quite careful, you know, kind of what you're investing in and how you're doing it in, in terms of exposure to China. Um, I think China is going to have a bumpy road. Um, there's still a lot of kind of political risk there in terms of, you know, policy. Um, the real estate market is still definitely a risk there. Um, but, you know, to be frank, you could say the same for Canada. Uh, you know, their real estate market is, is, is under a lot of pressure. You know, prices have been very, very high and are starting to come down and their banks are very exposed to that. Uh, much less the case here in the U.S., you know, relative to, say, 2007, 2008, where we kind of went through that already. Um, but I think I think China is going to be bumpy, but it's definitely less bad than it was. So, again, the second derivative looks better. Um, so, you know, I've been getting I've been underweight emerging markets in aggregate for a long time now and still am. But I'm less so now because of that sort of incremental improvement in China and because some of the other areas outside of China are looking better. 
Um, and so, um, and then you just mentioned, oh, airlines um, uh, and, and th things like that. You know, I think fuel prices coming down helps them. Um, that uh, and, and demand for, for you know for travel and services, people wanting to go places, um, you know, are, are certainly helping them as well. But um, so I think there's some some very specific things that are going on with you know with gold and China and things like that. Um, some of it is related to you know reversals of what happened last year, um, and I think that's going to be a theme you know, to some degree this year. Is a lot of what you know was the problem last year is less of a problem this year. Um, so that that's going to be China to some degree, Russia and energy uh, costs uh, and the Fed. Those are all fading, and now it's more you know can companies grow you know organically without stimulus. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing right now is kind of where is the steady state going to be for um, some of these specific industries, but but for the overall economy of you know once you don't have stimulus and you've dealt with you know higher rates, you know where things settle out. And so, um, so China's trying to stimulate, you know, to some degree, uh, unlike here in the U.S. and, and uh, in Europe, where we're still tightening. But I think um, uh, there'll be, you know, some offsets to that uh, as the real estate market, you know, adapts to the new reality. Right. Yeah. The one thing giving me pause on China is the fact, as you said, it's the large cap stocks that everyone knows about, Alibaba, Tencent, that are leading the charge. And the companies that are much less well known to Western foreign investors are kind of not moving at all. So that gets you pause like, oh, what if it's a bunch of portfolio managers in London and New York who are like, I know I'll buy Alibaba, but the actual, you know, uh, Chinese nationals who are, you know, could buy uh, uh, local local shares and, you know, they are intimately, if they work at the company, intimately, you know, aware of the economy and then the earnings, they're not, they're not following suit. Um, so it's interesting on China. You, I know also you're, so you're less underweight emerging markets than you historically have been, but you're still underweight. I know you've been overweight, non-US, non-emerging markets, so I guess that's what, Europe and Japan. Why is that the case? And then also, can you explain to me what is going on in Europe? Because, uh, you know, I, as, as many, expected uh, Europe to economic growth to stall out, uh, particularly in places like Germany, which were very dependent on Russian natural gas. Russian natural gas has fallen uh, like a stone. Interestingly, a lot of natural gas producers, the stocks have not gone down, uh, which is interesting to me. But... Um, yeah, and, and you know, the euro, the currency collapsed, but now it's, it's surging, surging back. Uh, what is going on with the European stock market? What's your outlook and how is it shaped by the earnings as well as the earnest, earnings estimate, which as viewers will know by now, you track very closely? That's right. That's right. Europe's been, uh, I think, a surprise to a lot of people uh, to some degree. Um, it's definitely held up much better than I think the consensus had been for much of the last you know, year or so. Everyone, like you said, was expecting that the uh, energy crisis you know, caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine would really just knock the whole European economy over and they'd be in a severe recession, you know, even by now, and, uh, and that there would be you know, no way to avoid it. Um, but what I think has, has transpired is that the preparations they made you know, over the summer and fall to you know, build up their natural gas uh, you know, storage and try to reduce, you know, uh, usage and, you know, a lot of things that they've done have, you know, kind of paid off and they've gotten lucky with a much milder than expected winter, which has meant that the energy crisis has been less bad than anticipated and, uh, industrial production, things like that, even in places like Germany has, again, much less bad than expected. It, it's slowed and contracted to some degree, but it's much less, uh, negative than it, than it, when it was expected to be even a few months ago. And so I think that means that, uh, the stock market has been able to outperform because it was priced at you know 11 or 12 times earnings um, fairly recently and is now that's expanded somewhat, but it's still pretty cheap because everyone was assuming that there would be no growth in Europe you know for a long time, and uh, and so I've been seeing that in actually the earnings estimate revisions for several months now, uh, where you look at the you know kind of the regional profile of earnings estimate revisions and again negative in most places, but Europe was much less negative than everywhere else particularly Europe, ex-UK, the continent. Um, UK has been a little bit weaker, but still above average. And I think that's partly because of what's happened with the energy and partly because, you know, Europe doesn't have the Apples and Googles and Microsofts that we do in the US. You know, they just, they're just not, they don't have tech giants the same way. They don't have the big cap growth stocks the way we do. So for a long time, that hurt them on a relative basis because they didn't have that kind of growth. Uh, the way the U.S. markets did, but now it actually may be working a little bit to their benefit on a relative basis, because they don't have those stocks that are you know under pressure here in the U.S. to weigh down their equity indices. They're actually more exposed to financials and industrials and to some degree energy and things like that that have been outperforming. 
and had better better relative uh, fundamentals. So uh, whereas you know for a long time you know not being in the big cap growth stocks was was hurting them and, and now it might be helping them on a relative basis. But I think the fact that their economy has sort of done okay thanks to all the preparation and the stimulus and the different things that they've done is uh, showing up now in the earnings and showing up in relative returns. And now that the dollar shifted, you know, U.S. investors that are invested in Europe were actually much happier, uh, you know, with a, with a rising euro, and uh, they've done much better. So that's why, yeah, I've been overweight Europe for a while now, um, somewhat overweight Japan as well. Um, so the kind of EFI markets, the developed ex-U.S. Uh, markets have, have done much better and have been holding up better on a fundamental basis um, than the U.S. has or than emerging markets have. So that's been my kind of regional profile for a while now. And so we're going to have to see how that plays out as kind of markets catch up and analysts catch up and, and see if that continues. Um, but that's been the, been the play for a few months now uh, and, and could continue for a while because it was years that the U.S. has been just the dominant factor regionally, um, both because of the dollar and because of relative earning strength. And I think that's now shifted uh, for a little while, um, both because the Fed has been much, much more aggressive than, say, the European Central Bank has um, and because uh, the expectations were just so very negative for Europe uh, for a long time. And so, you know, kind of reversing that negative sentiment may take a while to adjust. How much of a tailwind for European equities was the weak euro? And I actually, uh, I mean tailwind because even though the prices which are denominated in euros will be less valuable, when the euro is weak, uh, it boosts the ability of, of foreigners to buy European goods. So for example, you know, LVMH, Louis Vuitton, they uh, used to be able to sell a bag for you know a thousand dollars. Now they can sell it uh, for um, uh, you know twelve hundred dollars. Or or their input costs used to be you know four hundred euros. Now it's three hundred fifty euros. Um, and I, Japan, the currency has been extremely weak. So to what degree was were those earnings helped by a weak euro? And if so, uh, you know what's your outlook now that the euro is is strong again or getting less weak? Yeah, no, I think there definitely was some benefit to uh, the exporters from the currency, uh, you know, uh, weakness that they saw, um, and that's that's kind of kind of come off to some degree now. Um, I think, generally speaking, you know, corporations prefer stable currencies. So if if the volatility of currencies in general kind of comes down, I think that'll be better in general for corporate profits and for the ability of analysts to forecast corporate profits. Um, and I think the, the offset to that, to some degree, will be if uh, because European uh, companies export a lot to China in particular and to Asia. And so if China does improve or at least, you know, stabilize and uh, even areas like, you know, Australia or Singapore or, you know, Japan look a little better, then I think the the benefits in terms of just actual sales to some of those areas that have been under pressure uh, may offset the currency effect that you get from the, uh, the, the cost pressures or the, the currency translation effect. So I think if, if general global economic growth and particularly in the weaker areas, you know, uh, in the Pacific, um, that are looking better now and have been picking up in, in my earnings investment work, um, though that can kind of filter over into Europe uh, for the exporters that, uh, particularly the, the luxury goods and things like that, that they sell a lot to uh, over there, maybe even more so than than into the U.S. Um, so I think again, there there it's a rotation to some degree more than a you know broad scale slowdown. I think the currency will have an effect, but it's not going to be enough to offset uh, those uh, those other factors. We talked a lot about what you're most bullish on. What are you most bearish on? It can be any part of the stock market, any sector, any individual stock, any location. It could also be a bond, commodity. You know, pick, pick your pick your poison. Yeah, I think generally speaking, um, you know the uh, the areas that you know are weakest right now, um, you know, are kind of like I said, the big cap tech and some healthcare and areas like utilities. Um, that I think may stay under pressure, that as long as energy prices continue to kind of stay the same or go down, I think um, uh, those areas that benefit from that are going to be, you know, going to be under pressure. Um, I think the, uh, you know, the, the tech weakness will probably work itself out over the next few months. It may be too early to do that right now. So I'm still underweight, some of those tech-related names uh, for now. Uh, but I think, um, you know, generally speaking, you know, you, the... Uh, you know, the bond market doesn't look particularly attractive right now. I think a lot of the good news there has been priced in at you know three and a half percent ten-year yields, and you know, credit spreads have come down some. There might be a little more room for credit to improve, but I wouldn't be too heavily weighted in, in fixed income at this point, um, just because they've already kind of you know it's already moved a fair amount. 
So I think it, it's late to get into that party uh, unless you really think the Fed's going to start to cut rates pretty aggressively. Um, so I think there's probably not much more to be gained there. Um, I think there's still risk in China. I think there's, it's less bad than it was in terms of the earnings estimate revisions, but I don't see that being a big you know, long-term secular growth story. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a bumpy ride there as well. Um, so in terms of you know, uh, you know, what I'm most bearish on, it's more uh, a function of you know, things that had been doing well for a while and that are now slowing, which have been sort of the, the COVID winners uh, that we're already still seeing you know, kind of slow down. Uh, but anything tied to, uh, to high uh, commodity prices, I think is going to be under pressure. So now that doesn't mean like some things like materials, um, you've got things that benefit from low input costs. But I think uh, the ones that, 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 are de- that are depending on, you know, the, the commodity super cycle, I think that's that's going to be a, a tough um, kind of argument to make over the next few years, longer term. Because I think that demand is going to slow down uh, on a secular basis. Three topics I want to ask before we close, Sam. I want to ask about the Fed. I want to ask about the yield curve reversion. But first, just to indulge my own curiosity, I got to ask you about the home builders, which is probably the most surprising sector in terms of how strong it has been. Mortgage rates absolutely exploded because the 10-year rate went up as well as the spread between mortgage-backed securities and and, uh, treasuries widened as the Fed was doing quantitative tightening. And so totally real refinancing activity, mortgage activity fell off a cliff and housing prices the rate of change, they started to go up more slowly, flatline, and now they're actually going down. I think actually we went seven per, they went down 7% uh, uh, over the past quarter uh, based on what just that's based on one. That's not a macro estimate. That's a, just one particular company. I mean, it's the biggest company in the world, um, Home Middle. But um, yeah, I mean, and then, but, the, but the stock markets are surging close to all-time highs. I think that the ETF is uh, ITB. Um what is going on in the home builders? What's your outlook? Because I mean, the prices of homes are going down. I can't imagine that the business will get better. And yes, they are cheap on a current basis, but they're not going to earn what they are. And their inventory is is quoted using prices from you know months ago when prices were much higher. Yeah, you're right. It's been a pretty dramatic move in some of the home builders. Uh, and some of them have come out, I think, with positive comments saying that you know, the slowdown or the weakness is not as bad as expected. There's still some demand out there. Um, I think activity levels have dropped off a lot. Um, and certainly things like refinancing have dropped off a lot due to rates. But I think there's still a demand, some demand for houses. I think there's been sort of almost like a locked market for a little while. I mean, the sellers don't really want to sell um, because then they'd have to take on a higher mortgage interest rate or they don't want to you know, pay the, the current high prices for a new house. And the buyers don't want to buy yet because they think prices will come down further. And they also are nervous about taking on a higher mortgage rate. Um, so there's been sort of this just, you know, uh, like I say, sort of a locked market or a standoff uh, within the housing market in the U.S. I think as that sort of, you know, eases a little bit, um, you'll see that, that there's still some demand for housing. It's not as bad as people maybe had assumed. And that the, because the building, the amount of building has really slowed down a lot, um, there's not as much of this oversupply concern um, going into the cycle here as you might have had otherwise. Um, so I think there's a, there's a, a bit of supply and demand going on there. And the fact that mortgage rates have come down and people maybe anticipate them coming down a bit more. The mortgage rates went up even more than, say, 10-year treasuries did, uh, on a, you know, proportionally speaking, mm-hmm. because of just the way the mortgage you know market works. Um, and so there's room for them to come down, kind of the spread scenario. And so to the extent that, again, looking at the rate of change, the second derivative, if you think mortgages are getting better, even if they're still high, that's you know that's going to help uh, stock prices that got slammed because of mortgages a few months ago, and so uh, so I think it's it's more of a again a snapback. So things that were you know worse you know six months ago three months ago have now getting getting a bounce because things aren't as bad as expected, and that's again the same same picture you're seeing elsewhere um, that uh, uh, that that it's just not as bad as people anticipated, and so you're getting these big bounces. And they're you know they're 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 smaller, they're volatile stocks. So it doesn't take a lot to move them sometimes, uh, but they really got you know cheap and, and, and beaten down. I think that's what you're seeing right now. Right. Um, and, and I want to ask you about the Fed. Uh, overnight rates are now, let's just say 4.5%. Uh, next week uh, on February 1st, they will 99.999% hike them to 4.75%. The market then expects they'll likely raise another 25 basis to uh, a, a top range of 5.0% uh, at the March Fed, uh, FOMC meeting. 
then the market is pricing in a lot of cuts uh, from March 2023 to December 2024, pricing in almost eight cuts, uh, maybe seven or seven or eight cuts. And uh, you know, if Sam, if you came on and you were a guest who had a very doom and gloom narrative about the economy, about you know, uh, you know, uh, everything's going to go to going to go to go hell and you know earnings are going to collapse uh unemployment is going to spike up in that scenario i would understand the fed cutting rates but in this narrative where you know the soft landing why would the federal reserve cut rates so do you agree with the market that the fed is going to cut and does if you do think so does your view depend on the economy being weak um i mean i do suspect there probably will be some rate cuts as you get into 24 um and i think it doesn't necessarily require that the economy be in a severe recession. I think what will happen is that um, once you get past about June or so or July of this year, the year-over-year rate of the CPI is going to come back down to sort of 2% numbers. Um, and then it'll be much harder to say we need rates at 5% when inflation is going to be at 2%. Um, and I think you're going to have um, the same kind of general picture of, you know, saying the economy is too strong and inflation is too high that argument's going to really weaken a lot over the next few months. And so by the time you get to the end of this year, um, saying we need 5% rates uh, when, you know, real growth is one to 2% at best and maybe zero and that, you know, earnings aren't really growing anymore uh, much and all these other factors that would have argued for higher rates are no longer there. Then, you know, the Fed's uh, economic projections have said that, you know, in the long run, looking out three to five years, two and a half percent is what they think is kind of, the long run stable state, you know, fair value for rates. So five is actually very high. That's very tight relative to where they think, you know, sort of rates should be normally. And so again, once you get past these sort of high rate, high inflation numbers from early last year, once those roll off, it's going to be very hard to make the argument that you need 3% real rates or higher um, just for the economy not to, you know, have a problem. So I think they're going to make an argument for say, okay, you at least come down a 100, 150 basis points just to get to sort of closer to what normal would be in a 2% inflation environment. Um, and that's where I think we're going to be by the time you get to mid late this year. Um, and so I think the Fed will then respond to that. And then the fact that I think other central banks will probably be doing similar things and start to kind of push in that direction. But I think it's not going to be much longer before this, you know, things are too hot, inflation is too high. That's that argument's going to fade pretty quickly. Um, and so I, I think, you know, a 5% rate is, is going to look really high um, in a few months. And that's why I think the market's starting to price that in, is that this would be an abnormally high rate to maintain for any length of time unless inflation is really, you know, running out of control. And unless we get some other big shock, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, where do you think inflation levels off at? And maybe I'll, I'll ask you uh, based on the month over month basis, because you mentioned rolled, rolled off, there's base effects. Uh, you know, in June of 2023, year over year, we'll be comparing it to June of 2022 when the price of oil was at 120 bucks. So yeah, month over month annualized or three month, whatever you want to pick. I mean, where do you think it, it plays out at? Because the Federal Reserve has, you know, underscored the fact that it is committed to inflation being at, at 2%. So do you think inflation has to, you know, go all the way down to 2% for the Fed to cut or, or go, uh, you know, month over month negative or, I mean, how how extreme do you think this disinflation has to get before the Fed cuts? I think it has to be pretty extreme. I think the Fed is, you know, kind of talked itself in a little bit of a box in terms of focusing on that 12-month year-over-year change. I think the fact that inflation has moved so fast and all the economic data has, you really had basically a, a lot of inflation run up until about June of last year. And since then, it's really slowed very dramatically. I mean, the six-month annualized is now below 2% already through December. So I think unless you think inflation is going to really reaccelerate, and that's the truth for the PPI, the CPI, even the, the you know the PCE is starting to slow down. A lot of these measures are really slowing pretty rapidly, and I think again, you know, two or three months from now, it will have slowed more and be much closer to that two percent level if they're not there already. Um, and that's what the market is anticipating. The, you know, the, the, the uh, inflation swaps and, and tips, you know, break evens, things like that. Are kind of already there because if you look at the last six months when the Fed has been you know raising rates and the economy's been slowing, we're kind of already there to some degree. Um, now, yeah, some of that may just be because of oil prices and things that have fallen, and it may not keep falling at that rate. But I think the pressure is off. Like you said, housing prices have really cooled off a lot. 
Um, that hasn't been reflected in the CPI yet because the way it's calculated, the shelter costs are lagged, you know, kind of by construction. And the Fed knows that. And so I think, you know, once you get to the point where everything outside of shelter in the CPI is slowing down, PPI is, you know, really slow, and you've got you know, PCE and other measures, you know, getting close to that kind of 2% level, again, you're going to have a hard time making the case that 5% is a necessary rate. Um, and that's what's going to drive the, the, the argument for cuts, you know, coming out, you know, six to 12 months from now. Uh, but I do think inflation is going to kind of come back down, uh, barring another shock. I think that's the, the natural kind of trend over the longer term. And then it's just a question of when the data, which is still volatile, kind of gets there to the point that the Fed will be more comfortable with it. And same thing with the labor market. Um, but I think I think we'll get there over the next few months. Um, and then it'll just be a matter of when the Fed wants to kind of shift its public stance, which is more of a PR thing than anything else. Right. And what do you think about the inverted yield curve? Because the Federal Reserve has hiked rates so much on the short end, short interest rates are close to 5%. Long-term interest rates haven't gone up by nearly as much. And therefore, the spread between them, like the two-year, 10-year spread, uh, is negative. And you know that, as you know, is frequently cited as a harbinger of recession. And you know, Sam, I'm a skeptical guy. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really. I, I sort of bristle when people say, "Oh, the bond market is telling you X. The bond market is telling you Y." Um, I mean, the bond market was extremely wrong in twenty, in you know, the latter half of 2020 and, and early half of 2021 because it did not foresee inflation at all. Um, however, you you would admit, I mean, I, I would admit that the track record of a yield curve inversion to precede a recession within, let's say, six to 24 months is extremely strong. So how do you interpret uh, the inversion of the of the yield curve? No, I think you're right. I think the bond market is now telling the Fed it's going too far um, in terms of raising rates, that it doesn't need to have rates even where they are probably now, much less, you know, 50 basis points higher. Um, and I think they're probably right in that regard. Um, and so we may get a recession in the next six to 12 months. I think the question is, is it going to be a really bad one or is it going to be a, a mild one? Um, I think the, there's a better case to be made that it would be a mild one and not one that's as extreme as you would assume based just on the extent of the yield curve inversion or even say the LEIs and things. Because again, you're kind of looking at, you had extremely high positive readings in you know, 21, early 22, and now you're coming off of them. So the rate of change is extreme. But the actual kind of levels of things are less extreme, meaning that there, we're not, you know, the growth rate isn't that negative and probably won't be. It'll just be, it'll seem like a big slowdown after a very, you know, high rate of growth. And so I think there's a, you know, there's a risk to over-interpreting the rate of change part of some of these measures, which shows up in the ISM, shows up in the yield curve, shows up in the LEIs. A lot of these things are, are really rate of change measures. And once you've had a very high rate of change, and then you turn to sort of a lower rate of change, that looks like a big slowdown, even if it's not in sort of real terms going to wind up being a dramatic recession. It just means that going from very high growth to, to zero growth will feel like a recession to some degree. Um, but I think that's that's where the, the difference, I think, comes with past cycles, is that you've never had that extreme a, a, of a boom uh, in a short period of time like we had post-stimulus uh, in 2021. And so the, the downside of that post boom looks very dramatic right now. But I don't think in real terms that it actually will be because, you know, there's still some, you know, fiscal activity supporting things. And the economy is in better shape, thanks to that, you know, balance sheets and everything else are in better shape now than they had been, you know, in past cycles. So we could probably manage this better uh, now than, than in past cycles. So um, I think the yield curve is definitely very, you know, extreme. And that's, that's one of the reasons I think the Fed will eventually start to cut rates because they don't want to have it be that inverted. They know that that's kind of unfavorable for the banking system to work with. So, uh, so I think they'll kind of move in that direction. They just have to kind of get the, the data to back them up a little bit more. Um, and they'll get that over the next, you know, few months, I think. Great point. Uh, nominal growth in the U.S., the rate of change of nominal growth in the U.S. fell from 10%. 2021 to let's just say 6% in 2022. And in that environment, oh my God, growth is slowing down. You got to buy bonds and short stocks. But no, you did not want to buy bonds in 2022. So that that is that point is, uh, is uh, well taken. Uh, Sam, it's been great having you on. Uh, people should check out Mill Street Research. Uh, your, your Twitter account is at MillSTResearch. My final question for you, Sam, is uh, if your, let's just say, soft landing view turns out to be wrong, why do you think it will be? What is the greatest 
risk to your thesis in 2023? Will, will it be because inflation will end up being higher than you expect? Or will it be because uh, the recession is much deeper than you expect or for another reason? No, my my guess is that the risk is kind of to the downside for growth and earnings and inflation. Uh, if I if I'm if I'm wrong and things are worse than expected, it's because the you know the Fed's tightening and everything else has caused the economy to really slow much more than what I'm what I'm looking for, and that you know inflation will not be a worry anymore, and that you know bond yields will fall, but earnings will fall a lot more than what's already expected, and that that's going to you know be the be the problem. Um, so I'm much more concerned about uh, you know, looking out, you know, six months, a year, 18 months, uh, the being wrong because weak growth is much weaker than expected, then it'd be too strong or inflation comes back again, barring a, you know, a pandemic or a new war or something like that, which I'm not really going to try to forecast. But I think the risk is that growth slows down too much, uh, rather than not enough. Mm. Sam, thanks again for coming on and thank you everyone for watching.